0: We're in Haggai, 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 Haggai. I'm going to say it differently every time just to mess with you. Let's talk about the historical situation for a moment. So remember last week we did Joel. And I told you that of the minor prophets, Joel is the one where I am the least confident in the dating of the book. He gives us lots of good generalities about the type of judgment that's coming through the locust plague. But Joel doesn't give us enough specifics that I feel confident, based on the scholarship I've read, that we can accurately date it. So I did what I, my best guess, with very little confidence, is where we put that in the order of things. Haggai is just the opposite. This is the most precisely dated book in the entire Bible, because in this book, the specific sermons that the prophet gives are dated to the day so we can tell you what day of what month of what year each of these were were given to the people the accuracy of those dates suggests that he was a a journaler journalers can look back and tell you exactly when they did a certain thing felt a certain way had a certain experience because they have the date on the page Uh, and so that was possibly the situation here The beginning of King Darius' reign is well-established, 522 B.C. Reasonable historians do not dispute this. And each of the four messages took place in the second year of Darius' reign, but that would have been 520 B.C. Think about the Persian kings for a minute. I know you, you do often. It's probably something you meditate on frequently. Cyrus is a name you know. Cyrus is the one who made the decree that the Jews could return to their land. That was in 538. So the Jews have been taken into exile. And Cyrus, the decree goes out, and they're allowed to come back. Many of the Jews did not come back. They didn't come back because they liked their new lives. They had settled down, They had become financially secure and they didn't see any real need to come back. And these are, if you think about your reading of the Old Testament, these are the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra and Nehemiah tells one story in two books. And that's what's happening here. The decree of uh, Cyrus and the question about whether the people will come back. The lists of people who do come back is carefully accounted for in Ezra. And it's only... 50,000 Jews that make the trip back, which is a pretty pathetic number given how many were taken into captivity. They'd been in captivity in Babylon for 70 years. We read about that in the book of Jeremiah. And they were first deported in 606 BC, and then the final destruction of the temple was in 586. So when the Persians defeated the Babylonians, Darius takes over. Darius has a different view of how to treat captive people. Before that, historically, most of these great empires, their idea was complete annihilation or complete assimilation. They wanted to wipe your culture and your history off the map. So they would either do that through destruction or they would do that through assimilation. You have to become just like them. Take on their names, take on their language, take on their gods and their religions. You know that from the story of Daniel. It was a big deal that Daniel took on all of the parts of the pagan religion, and what he got in trouble for was a refusal to do that—not not being willing to pray to false gods. Darius has a different approach. Darius's foreign policy is much more: I don't bother you; you don't bother me. You pay tribute; you honor me. And I let you kind of keep on doing your thing, uh, and and we're good. And so he decreed that the Jews could return to their homeland. And as part of that, because it was obviously significant to Jewish culture and religion, that they would rebuild the temple, because the temple had been destroyed in uh, 586. That's Ezra, 1 through 3. It's the beginning of that book. So the Jews come back, 50,000 of them anyway. And they set about this task of rebuilding the temple. And they get the foundation laid. Well, they get a lot of work done on the foundation. And then what happens? Have any of you ever laid a foundation for a major building project before? Have any of you ever tried to do a home renovation? It's hard and it is discouraging. You get into it and it's going to take longer than you thought and there's more opposition than you thought, and more goes wrong. Well, how much more on a project like this? So they get opposition from without. They get people who are opposed to this entire endeavor of rebuilding the temple, that this is not something the Jews should be allowed to do. Neighboring uh, nations and tribes have have a problem with this. And then they get discouragement from within because the work is slow, and a lot of times God's people tend to feel like, if I'm doing something that is God's will, It should be easy. If I'm doing something that God's will, I shouldn't face any opposition. Now, if you say that out loud and you think about it, you realize that's insanity. As we'll talk about in the sermon today, the world hates God. The world is not indifferent to God. The world hates God. And it hates the kingdom of God. And it hates the followers of God. So if you abide in Christ, the world will hate you. But they get discouraged here that this isn't going the way they wanted. And so they stopped. They just stopped the work of rebuilding the temple and we're going to take a little break to refresh and rejuvenate their spirits. And that little break lasted for 14 years (laughs) because during that little break, people start pursuing their own interests and people start taking care of themselves, working on their own projects, the stuff that really matters to them. And as this happens... The people begin to experience the discipline of God in their lives. And that's what Haggai is preaching to them about. The reason you're experiencing the discipline of God in your life is because you have set aside and neglected his interests, his will, for your own. And that's what this book is going to be about. And that's kind of the the context of it. Haggai wasn't the only prophet who talks about this. Zechariah is about this. God used Haggai and Zechariah to get the leaders and the people to return their attention to God's work. So through the leading of God, through the ministry of these prophets, through the decree and the funding of Darius I, he provided the resources, and through the leadership of Zerubbabel and Joshua, the high priest, the rebuilding of the temple is resumed after that 14-year hiatus, and it's completed in 516 B.C. Now, when did I say the temple was destroyed? 586. When was the temple completed, rebuilt? 516. How many years did God's people not have access to to the temple? 70 years. What's the significance of that? <laughs> Remember that as part of God's law, what were the people supposed to do with the land every seven years? Let it, Let it, rest. Let it rest. Every seven years, you were supposed to give the land a Sabbath. Did they do that? No. Yes, not. <laughs> no. They did not do it. How many years were they in the promised land? No way you would know this. 490. They were in the promised land for 490 years. How many Sabbath rests of the land did they skip? 70 years worth. So God kicked them out of the land to let it rest for 70 years to make up all of the Sabbaths that they had skipped that he told them the land would have. I mean, this is not accidental stuff. God's working in history is extremely focused on doing what he said he will do. And he said, the land will rest. And they said, nya. And he said, fine, have some Babylonians. They'll haul your butts out of here and the land will rest. And it did. And stuff like that. I mean, you can make too much of stuff like that where you go looking for some sort of super secret crazy meaning in every number that's in the Bible. But when they're that clear and that obvious, we also don't want to just ignore them and pretend that that's not, that's not there. Um, that is absolutely a part of what God was doing in that particular rest. So that is the time of Haggai Babylonian captivity, decree of Cyrus, they had the chance to rebuild. They took a 14-year hiatus, and then eventually it will be completed. But this book is in the period before it's completed. This book is in the period of this 14 years of inactivity where the people should be working on the temple. I mean, think about it. They were hauled off into captivity. And then the Lord raises up a pagan king who lets them go back and who tells them they can rebuild their temple and gives them the money to do it, and they don't do it. It's it's unbelievable, the lack, well, it's unbelievable until you live for a little while, how quickly a grateful heart can dissipate. (laughs) You should be motivated by gratitude. Gratitude. And then one little thing, and suddenly we're grumbling and complaining, and we don't want to do this anymore, and God's not good to us. And I was like, did you forget eight minutes ago? Eight minutes ago. (laughs) Those of us who are parents go through this regularly, and no sooner do we see this in stunning displays by our own children that blow our minds, that we turn around and do exactly the same thing. Exactly the same thing. So that is the time of Haggai, which the message is pretty straightforward. The blessings of God are withheld when people neglect the worship of God. That's the message of the book. The blessings of God are withheld when people neglect the worship of God. So let's start here at the beginning. Matt, you're right in front of me. Will you read 2 through 5? all the crazy
1: names. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Let me finish or something. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag
0: with holes. So, the basic problem to rebuilding the temple, why the people aren't doing it, is religious indifference. They don't think it's important. And you hear me harp on this all the time. One of the ways where I am at my most, I could say incisively penetrating, but I think I'll say obnoxious, is forcing people to tell the truth and to say out loud what's real. Because very often what's real is I don't want to when you ask people why they're not doing X, Y, Z, why they're not prioritizing this, why they're not, and they'll give you a, a litany of reasons. And? Well, i mean, just... I'm, mm-hmm. And? And eventually I try to help them get to, you don't want to. You don't think it's that important. If you thought it were important, you would make it happen. You would, we all have things in our life that are not convenient to do. And when we believe they are important, we put whatever systems, tools, processes, reminders, rewards, punishments, whatever in our lives so that we do those things that are important. And the multitude of prompts is a good thing, not a bad thing. I have very little patience for the person who says, because it's God, you should just want to. Yeah, great. Let me know how that works out for you. It is true that love of God, devotion to God, should be a motivation in our hearts. It's also very experientially true, and scripture speaks to this, that that's not always going to be enough to make you do it. You do need the threat of hell. You do need the peer pressure of other believers who are snatching you out of the fire by speaking to you what's true. You do need earthly consequences. The fact that sin has earthly consequences sometimes is super helpful. All of those things together encourage us to do the right thing, to walk more closely with Christ. And yes, chief among them should be devotion to Christ. But... God's gracious. He doesn't have that stand all by itself. All of these other things accompany it. And so you will do what you want to do. No one in the history of the world has ever done anything they didn't want to do. And so you you look at that thing and you say, Well, I didn't want. Yeah, you did. You know how I know? You did it. You did it. You chose to do it. So the people are not choosing to rebuild the temple. And you get this penetrating accusation that gets at the heart there in verse 4 that Matt read. Because do you know what the people are doing? They're living in paneled houses. Paneling matters contextually because paneling comes from what? Trees. How many trees are in Jerusalem? olive trees (laughs) good luck building panels out of that so trees have to be imported paneling has to be imported remember all the times in the bible it says the cedars of Lebanon. lebanon that's where panels come from lebanon and it was expensive to import cedar panels from lebanon as you can imagine it remains expensive today i suspect That's what they were spending their money on. And that's what they were spending their time on. They had to go source these products. They didn't have a Fagin that would do the sourcing for them and negotiate the best deal. They had to source these products. They had to negotiate the deals. They had to spend their money on these expensive panels. And then they had to install the panels in their houses. So they had some time on their hands. And they had some money available. And while their houses are getting fancy wood panels, what's happening to the Lord's house? Nothing. They got a foundation half poured. It's the thought that counts until it rains. And so he instructs them in verse 5 to consider your ways. Think about that. God is saying to his people, think about the discontinuity The hypocrisy between what you are saying matters to you and what you are actually doing. Because that shows what's real, what you really think is important. They're not putting God first. They're primarily concerned with their own comforts. And that's a problem of misplaced priorities. And it is one of the oldest problems in the world. And a problem that still plagues us today. Misplaced priorities. I need this more than I need that. I need the approval of the world more than I need the approval of God. I need good social standing. I need more money. I need whatever it is more than I need increased fellowship and union with Christ. And they're neglecting the worship of God. They don't need it. They haven't even rebuilt the place where they would go to worship. They can't even pretend. I'm worshiping God in my heart they don't even pretend because they won't even rebuild the temple I want to to say this clearly because there's no inoffensive way to say to somebody you shouldn't skip church that's a bad decision not like I want to scold you what you're doing is not good for you it's offensive to say that so like at one level we just have to get over that what we need to make sure is being communicated is the way that you feel in making the choice you're making, the priorities you have. I'm not saying that's completely alien. Like, I couldn't even understand how somebody could feel that way. I'm saying it's not good for you. People who want to get mad will hear the insulting version no matter how you say it. But it is our job to make sure we're clear and to say it the right way. This is not about scolding you. This is not about I'm better than you. This is about what I have found. I have found that what God says is true. This is better for me. And it is better for you. How can I help you to make this a more important part of your life? It's a good question. And when asked in love, they'll get mad at you first. I would get mad at you first. And then maybe by the spirit, we calm down and have a better conversation with you later. So what are the symptoms of these misplaced priorities? Well, Matt read the first one there in verse 6, which is dissatisfaction. They're experiencing unsatisfying lives. And this is completely, as our friends at Christ's Covenant would say, this is completely counter-predictable. Because what you think is that if you pursue your ends instead of God's, your will instead of God's, whatever else goes wrong with your life, Your life will at least be satisfying. It might have all these other problems, but it will be satisfying. And the report from the people who are doing exactly that is just the opposite. The first problem they list with their lives is unsatisfying. And scripture talks about this again and again and again, because all of the things that the world and the flesh and the devil convince us are going to satisfy us, ultimately don't. They might be satisfying things if they're used in the service of Christ and in obedience to Christ. And they might be part of a very satisfying life, but they in and of themselves can't satisfy money, sex, this stuff is, can be very good and a part of the satisfying life. But if you try to make a satisfying life built on money or sex, it won't do it. It won't work. Uh, it shouldn't even be controversial to say that. Look around the world. <laughs> it's, it is ultimately unsatisfying. The second symptom, Andrew, will you read 9 through 11? Yes. Yeah. You looked for much, and behold, it came for little.
1: And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? declares the Lord of hosts. Because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors.
0: So the second symptom of misplaced priorities, the first is an unsatisfying life. The second is the discipline of God. (laughs) Because... In one sense, fortunately. In the other sense, unfortunately. God chooses not to ignore his people's misplaced priorities. He chooses not to ignore his people's divided hearts. He chooses to discipline them in their unbelief and sin. And so they do all they can do. You bring all this stuff home. You gather all this stuff that is, going, that is your priority. This is what I put all my energy and time and intellect and ability into. Was gathering this stuff and bringing it home in verse 9. And what does God do? Blows it away. You want to build your life around a career. A career can be a good and valuable part of a God-honoring life. It can be part of what creates obedience in our lives, one of the places where it's manifested. But if you prioritize that and want to build your life around it, you may find that God in his discipline blows it away. I've seen this with family, with people who make, it's more common among women than men, with people who make their family their number one priority. The the appearance of their family to the world. The devotion of their children to them as a mother. They build their entire identity on this. It is what their life is about. And God in his discipline may cause your children not to like you very much. Or to take a job in Cambodia. (laughs) Because God won't have it. The people that he loves... He is going to correct, (laughs) and when we misplace our priorities, God may take them away. I laugh because it is why, and Daphne will tell you, every time I decide that I'm going to take us out to eat on a Sunday afternoon, which I'm not saying is necessarily a sin or even some great sin, it is against my conviction of how to use the Lord's day, and every time I break my own conviction... New Testament says, don't sin against your own conscience. If it's sin to you, it is sin. Well, it is sin to me. But every single time I say, nope, we're doing it. We're doing this thing. We're going out. It's a good time. Well, you will have fun. It's a nightmare. It un- we get the world's worst waitress. I end up looking like a jackass in a fight with her. I, I, like the bill's wrong. My food is burnt. It all goes wrong. Because the Lord is saying to me, principled, huh? Hmm. Those are your priorities, huh? (laughs) Until they're not. The Lord disciplines us. So in this case, like verse 11, who is the source of the natural disasters that befall on the people? It's God. He's not blind to them. He doesn't allow them to happen because he respects people's free will. He brings them. He brings disaster on the land. Why? Because what the people needed was disaster. Because the people's priorities were all screwed up. And so he disciplines them. That's chapter one. Questions about that? Yes? You can answer this later if it doesn't
1: fit now, but I've talked to a couple of friends. Like, What would you say? Is-
0: I'll say more about that in the sermon, but I, th- I think what what Christians tend to get wrong is that the, the dividing line between the Christian and the world is about the things, the items themselves, whether that is money or career. And so what we end up saying is, you can't have a career as a Christian the same way an unbeliever has a career. And you look at those and say, those are comparable careers. You can't do that. You can't have the same amount of house. You can, right? We look at the thing and say the distinction is about the thing. I don't see that anywhere in scripture. The distinction is about the affection of the heart. What does the heart love? The heart loves God, I've recommended a hundred times, I know Andrew's read it, Joe Rigney's book, The Things of Earth. The heart that loves God and that loves God through the good gifts that God brings into someone's life, this is a little hyperbole, can have any car they want. Because that heart is generous toward God. That heart is generous toward others. That heart... It's not about the car. It's about the enjoyment of God. And that's true about career. That's true about everything. So the the way your life will look different from the world may not be in the things. It will be in, it's, it's in how you got them, but it will very much be in how you think about them, how you treat them, how you use them. Are you identified by them? Yeah, and the, the, the do you love the thing more than you love God? Somebody can be meticulous about their car because they're a meticulous person. Or somebody can be meticulous about their car because they love things more than God. And the result of that is that they love things more than people. And so then when somebody creates a non-meticulous situation in their car, what happens? You get angry. Anger is a great great barometer for what you love. Think about what makes you angry. Take away for a minute injustice, righteous anger. We all should be pro-righteous anger. I hope you were at some point this week. But think about what makes you angry more often. Something you love is at the heart of that. I love obedience. People unquestionably doing what I want for them to do. That's not a good thing to love. And what happens when people don't do it? Anger. Right? If you love stuff and people disrupt your stuff and that makes you angry, it revealed that you love the stuff or your own plans or your reputation. can't believe that person told that other story about me because now I look like a why are you so mad? Because you love your reputation. I'm not saying you can never be angry. I'm not, I'm, but I am saying if you look at what makes you angry the most often, something you love is what's buried underneath there. Does that help? Yeah, thank you. All right. The promised glory of a new temple. So this is chapter two. The people are discouraged. Why are they discouraged? Karen, can you read two, one through Nine.
2: Son of Jehosedek, the high priest, be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all the nations, so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I
0: will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. The problem is this problem of discouragement, right? The people are discouraged. That's why they've stopped working. And then that led to selfish hearts. And now he's trying to encourage them to get back to worship. But there are some who are genuinely discouraged in this. The work is long and hard. This was not... They hired out some subcontractors and made it happen for them. This was hard work. And they're facing opposition, internally and externally. And then in verse 3, you get this one other factor, which is the sentimental factor from the people who had seen the original temple. And there was no way that this was going to match that. It couldn't. We've been reading about that some in, in, in Kings... There is no way it could match the splendor of the original temple. Solomon paid for it. He had infinite resources and used them. <laughs> and it, there was nothing like it in the history of the world. And so now they're happy to be back in the land. They're happy to be able to rebuild the temple, but as it starts to go up and they lay the foundation, there's that little pain in their heart of, "It's not like it used to be. It's not like it was. And the prophet encourages the people on two fronts. First is verses 4 and 5. What is the temple about? It's about the presence of God. And the people should be encouraged because they have the presence of God. They should get to work and be eager to rebuild this because it represents the presence of God. And if they will get their priorities right being within the presence of God is one. (laughs) However else you do two through seven, being within the presence of God is one. And back to our earlier discussion about common 21st century indifference toward being at church. Yes, the presence of God is with you always. Yes, there are senses in which you can worship God anywhere and everywhere, and that all of your life is an act of worship. All of those things are true. And it remains the fact that the Lord's Day, with the church, the people that God has gathered out of the world together, using the means of grace that God has appointed, scripture reading and preaching and the prayers and the sacraments, There's no replacement for that. It is, in fact, the one guaranteed place of God's presence with you. So you go through a week where you feel as far away from God as possible. Yes, you have access to God wherever you are, and you can get back to him. But also, if you are here, here being wherever a faithful church is worshiping, God is there too. God is there. The Spirit of God is inescapably present there. And we should should believe that matters. (laughs) I mean, you saw it during COVID. The ways that churches utterly failed their people was to act like that doesn't matter. That that's something that can be captured on a computer screen. And it can't. That doesn't mean it's wrong to watch a service on a computer screen. It does mean that's not worship. That's not the people of God gathered and being perfected by the Spirit of God through the use of the means of grace. And we don't have to say something else is bad to say that that is unique and irreplaceable. And the world, even the church, acts like it is replaceable. So, One, be encouraged because you have God's presence and that's what it's all about. And then two, verses six through nine, God's got this. God will take care of filling the temple. All the worries that you have that this isn't gonna be as good as the old one or we can't get the band back together. We can't have it like we used to have. I long for the good old days. Is God sovereign or not? There is no faithful. Gathering of believers that is pathetic in the eyes of God. There is no such thing. That's a worldly observation. And their standards are all wrong. (laughs) And the one who observes says, right here, I'll make it good. You do what I have told you to do, you be obedient. And I will make it objectively good. I'll do it. It'll happen. Uh, Nick, will you read verse seven to remind us? So, chapter two, verse seven. Sorry. Uh, and, I will, and I will shake all nations. And I will shake all nations, so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. <clears throat> the silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall.: be... So you've all heard that verse before, and the question about that verse is that it's often applied to Jesus as a messianic promise. And in fact, your English translation, whatever version you use, has probably made the choice for you. <laughs> so the NIV, the desired of all nations will come. The New King James capitalizes it so that you can be really sure that they're talking about Jesus. The New American Standard disagrees. They will come with the wealth of all nations. And the RSV, the same. The treasure of all nations will come. The ESV has treasure of all nations. So your English translation is making the interpretive choice for you about whether this is Messianic about Jesus or not Messianic about treasures. Now, this verse does point forward the way most of, the way all of the prophecies do. You think about what God is going to do in the future that this passage talks about. He will shake the heavens and earth. He will shake the nations and their wealth will belong to him. He will fill the house of the Lord with a glory greater than the former house. He will grant peace in this place. So it does point forward. But contextually, What was being talked about here just before this? It was the lament that the new temple wasn't going to be as good as the old one. And God's response to that is the wealth of the nations will be brought in to adorn this temple so that it will match the former glory of Solomon. You all don't know and you can't see how I'm going to make this as good as the old one was. But silver and gold are going to be brought in. The nation's wealth is going to be recaptured for our purposes and put into the temple. And so God is going to intervene to overthrow the power bases of the world. He's going to shake the nations so that they bring their wealth. And that's exactly what happened. Cyrus, Darius, Artaxerxes, even Herod, God takes from them to use for his own purposes, because it's all his. He gave it even to them. It's all his, and so he uses it for their purposes. Now, Hebrews 12 makes clear there's a spiritual Mount Zion. There's a spiritual Jerusalem. Craig, will you turn there real quick? Hebrews 12, 22. God, God will shake the earth's and the, the earth and the heavens. The kingdom of God is the one thing. That will remain when God shakes the earth and the heavens. There are spiritual promises pointing forward in this. But very specifically, it seems like a very clear answer to a question. Craig, will you read 12, 22 to 28?
1: But you have come to Mount Zion into the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. And to the numeral, numeral angels in festal gathering. And to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. And to God. Judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warned from heaven. At the same time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship, reverence, and awe, for our God is a consuming fire.
0: See how he tied that back to worship? What's going to happen in every age of history out there in the world? God is going to shake it. And things are going to crumble. Empires will rise. Empires will fall. Famines and droughts will come. Famines and droughts will go. Global pandemics will hit. Tyrannical governments will seize control. Christians will find themselves accepted in one culture. And completely rejected in another. That's what happens in the world. It's not random. It's what God is doing, shaking the world. Where is the one safe place to be? And you would want to say something vague, like in Christ, and blah, blah, and all that's true. Except what do both of these passages go directly back to? Worship. Worship is the safe place to be. Worship is how God draws our hearts and our attentions back to him. And you're like, whoa, it's crazy snowing outside. And worship, God draws our hearts and attentions back to him because snow's fun, but pandemics aren't. (laughs) Tyrannical governments aren't. And you live out in that stuff and it's distracting and it scrambles your brain and it convinces you of all these lies and it makes you uncertain and it makes you want to change your behavior and look more and more like the world so that you don't have to put up with this persecution. And God says, worship, come to worship. And in worship, I will reorient your priorities. I will convince you of my promises. I will reground you in my love. And when the whole earth is shaken, do you know what you'll be? Fine. You'll be fine. Fine. And that's what this is all about.